Last week, I had the daunting task of covering Ananias and Sapphira. That is not an easy passage to have to preach. Uh, But we learned that their actions went well beyond the issue of the offering plate and into the dangerous territory. Wow, there's more dangerous territory than not giving in church. (laughs) Into the really, the dangerous territory that they'd stepped into in that particular situation was hypocrisy. And uh, we saw that this was big enough to bring a sense of grief to the Holy Spirit. And in our last text, we saw that the Lord himself took drastic action against them and their attitude. If you missed last week, grab the CDs. Um, They will be produced particularly after the end of this one, so Will usually puts two at a time on there. But there's plenty of download options too. But for this week, we finished last week on chapter 5, verse 11 with the picture of new life blooming after the controversy of Ananias and Sapphira. The church has set in and it's hit its stride. We see that they've made a part of the outer courts, Solomon's Colonnade, as their meeting place. That's Solomon's Colonnade there. And that would be, that's an artist's rendition of it all. You've got the temple in the background. It's as close as the Gentiles were able to get to. It's still part of the outer courts. And, but it's also a really good meeting place and a good spot in the corner where people could meet. And uh, we see there's a clear line in its leadership, with the apostles being upheld as the true leaders of the movement. Uh, God was endorsing them as such by using them to perform signs and wonders, and the people are not daring to join them or dispute them. Uh, people are still joining the church in droves, and God is moving powerfully. But of course, we also know that it's not all champagne and chocolates either, right? <laughs> You know, we go into 5.17, we see more acts of persecution from the authorities. And in particular, we see uh, a vocal minority group called the Sadducees starting to kick in there with their persecution. Uh, the high priest was a Sadducee and, and uh, many members of the high end of the priesthood, the aristocracy, uh, aristocratic part of the priesthood, were Sadducees. Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead or the immortality of the soul. They didn't believe in angels or spirits, and neither did they believe in rewards or punishments handed out after death. Not much of a faith. What are they teaching these people? But to understand all that then helps us see their problem with Christianity. To them, Jesus rising from the dead was impossible. And furthermore, their teaching on eternal life through faith in the risen Christ would have been treated as an absolute sense of heresy from what they were teaching there. This group of Jewish leaders were influential enough to have the apostles arrested and locked up for what they were teaching. Of course, we see that the Lord was with them and the prison doors are miraculously open and an angel gets in there and tells them to keep on preaching, just keep doing what you're doing. You know, and uh, they end up with another meeting in the Sanhedrin, and I'm going to visit that particular part in a few weeks' time when we talk about Paul the Apostle. That would all tie in really tidily there. But chapter 5 ends with a great picture of the mindset of the apostles. They've just literally received a flogging. And verse 41 tells us that they left the scene of their punishment rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus. The apostles are getting the job done. The city is open to the gospel. The opposition is present, but the opportunities are far larger and there's still so many people to reach. Now, as a disclaimer, a couple of weeks ago, I suggested that the population of Jerusalem is about twenty-five to 30,000 people. You know what? I had too many books open. And if you know me by now, you know I don't navigate books very well. But uh, that was actually the size of the church at that time as we go into chapter 6. Jerusalem's population, there's a a historian named Tacitus, a Roman historian who was quite reliable and said at 66 AD, the population of Jerusalem was about 600,000. 
So we're talking a much bigger figure here. So my bad. So uh, there you go. If, I, if, there, if it's out there, if it's on CD, or if it's been downloaded, now it's being rectified. Uh, but we've got a church of about 25,000 people already starting to flock now. It was a really big task ahead, but one that wasn't daunting the church. You know, but now we're going to come into chapter 6. So here we go. Chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. And we will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented them to the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. The church has an interesting situation here. On the surface, it seems like a cut and dry issue to deal with. What we have here is an administration problem. One group in the church is getting more attention than the other. And it's a very valid problem because at the heart, widows are being neglected. And throughout all of Scripture, one of the big things that the essence of giving and the essence of religion itself is the upkeep and the, the keeping and the looking out for widows and the orphans in amongst their midst. That was right from Old Testament through the New Testament. That was a major issue. So what we have here is a very legitimate problem here. Widows are being neglected. But this incident also highlights another problem in their midst. Ancient Israel through the number of invasions and occupying forces, became a bit of a multicultural cauldron. Not so much in ethnicity. It wasn't quite an ethnic multicultural thing, but in schools of thought. The Hebraic Jews mentioned in this passage grew up in Israel or around Palestine and had grown up educated in the traditional Hebrew ways and the traditional Hebrew language. That's what a Hebraic Jew was all about. They were the ones who were closest to Israel, placed around Palestine, familiar with that sort of language and tradition. On the other hand, Hellenism stemmed from the conquest of Alexander the Great. And, this, and he's, he had a drive to instill the Grecian way of life and civilization through the Mediterranean world. He was one of his mentors, one of his trainers was Aristotle. So he had a lot of a philosophical uh, mindset. He didn't just want a military takeover, all the lands and that sort of thing. He wanted to bring a way of life in as well. The Greek language became the main language of the world, particularly the Mediterranean region there. But Grecian or Hellenistic culture was far more than language. It extended into all areas of culture, including the arts, sport, politics, health and education. The Jews who had scattered over the years and ended up living outside of Palestine had become quite accustomed to this sort of cultural way. So when you come and you've got a bunch of Hellenistic Jews present at the temple, it's because Pentecost and all those feasts have come through and all the people from all over the world have come to gather to worship and you've got a big mix of Hebraic Jews, the locals, as well as all these people from the other parts of the world, the Hellenists. 
Hellenism was a culture that was far less primitive than the ancient Hebrew ways and was far more progressive in its world experience. Having a handle on the Greek language set you up for international trade and travel and it gave you a chance to appreciate the arts and education of that particular way of life. It was such an influential thing that they were even able to produce an authorized Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. This was produced in Egypt. And by the time we get to the first century church here, that publication had been in circulation for 300 years. The Hellenistic Jews, when coming to Christianity, were also a a more natural fit when it came to reaching out to the Gentile world because they experienced it and they lived that lifestyle. They were coming out of that life. They understood that life. Unfortunately, the Hebraic Jews considered the Hellenists to be sellouts. To them, they had forsaken Hebrew, God's language, and were not in touch with the traditions of their true heritage. Their faith was seen as too tainted by the world outside their little piece of land. As you can imagine from that, in Jerusalem, there was a significant conflict of ideals between these two groups. And the Hebraic Jews fought long and hard for control because it had to be their way or not at all, particularly around Jerusalem and worship. When it came down to it, what we have here is a a cultural battle. And if I could put it in a really crude nutshell, it's this. Old school versus new school. In the early church, it was the Hebraic Jews who were administering things, particularly welfare. The widows who happened to be from a Hellenistic background and spoke Greek were being neglected. The Hebraic widows got the most attention. And in the Phillips translation, which is something from post-war, It says that they were accused of getting preferential treatment. That's an awful way to talk about something in church. While the issue at hand is valid and needs a solution, the issue should not have occurred in the church in the first place. Galatians 3 tells us that in the new covenant, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, nor slave nor free, nor male nor female. For we are all one in Christ Jesus. The cultural conflict that was going on outside the walls of the church where the traditionalists were suppressing the new schoolers, had made its way into the church. And instead of keeping things pure like the Hebraics had hoped, it was actually breeding division. The response in the church to this problem that came up, now we've got a problem and now we've got the church's response and then we've got the apostolic response. Church's response was a bit sinister here. The word complain here in the Greek is gonguzmos, And it means to mutter, murmur, or debate in secret. It was a word that paralleled the charge of murmuring presented against Israel when they continually spoke behind Moses' back. Debate in any setting, including church, is actually a healthy thing. As long as it's open and two-sided. Complaint in secret is destructive. And early in the life of this church, it is exposed as a third wave of Satan's attack on the church. If he can't persecute you into stopping, and we don't have much of a problem here with that, if he can't corrupt you like Ananias and Sapphira, then he's going to turn his attention to causing distraction. The issue in the Jerusalem church became an unhealthy distraction in the life of this church. See, the problem with behind-the-scenes behind complaining is that through this means, everyone believes they are right 
and no space for compromise can be found. And more often than not, neither is it actually sought. As word began to trickle back to the apostles, there's no doubt the talk would have been quite interesting. It would have started with someone from the Hellenists coming up and just getting up to someone, not the apostles themselves, but someone close to the apostles. And they would say something like, everyone thinks what's going on is wrong. Then the apostles get word of this and then they they begin investigating all this stuff. And then they find out that that person's interpretation of everyone has been that person and the other one or two who they found who agreed with them. Then someone from the Hebraics might make the same, same sort of claim. To the contrary, though, everything we see is wrong, and these Hellenists are just absolute blah, 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 blah. Everyone believes that. Again, the apostles will investigate, and they'll find that everyone is not quite as everyone as people first thought. The distraction came when the apostles began chasing the rabbit trails of conversations all dotted all over the place. They're trying to get to the bottom of what is being said, but because most of it is being said behind the scenes, they weren't getting the full story. And because earlier in the text we read that no one dared join the apostles, there was a culture creeping in that created factions and keep things head, kept things hidden from church leadership. It was growing into something very unhealthy, and if not dealt with, it would have caused the church to come screeching to a halt. Instead of doing the task that Jesus asked them to do, the apostles were getting derailed by doing the social administration that the crowd seemed to demand. This presented even greater risks to the church as a whole because in the meantime, the task of teaching the church and providing the church a safe rite of passage through, through doctrine and, and, and all that sort of protection stuff, as well as leading and interceding in prayer, all those things were being made to play second fiddle in the life of the Jerusalem church because of all these little rabbit trails. So wisely and rightly so, the apostles took action. In the name of transparency, they made the complaint a public matter for before the church. It was becoming an elephant in the room. It was being whispered about, but never dealt with because the wrong people were involved in the conversation. Not anymore now that the apostles have gotten involved. They were seeing the, the seeds of division and cracks on the surface, and good leaders are supposed to see those things, and then they get right on the front foot in their response. You know, if you've been around church long enough, you'll know this. Issues can fester under the surface for ages. And they can actually bring a sense of discouragement into the place. And the pastor, more often than not, can't quite put their finger on it without being heavily distracted, chasing it all down. The source of that sort of thing is actually not a godly thing. Quite frankly, it's actually a demonic design. It's intended to fly under the radar until it is too late and damage has been done. If it gets out in the open, it gets dealt with swiftly and everyone moves on. Complaint can be a bit like an infection of sorts. You know, cover it, keep it moist, it'll fester, it'll get worse. Open it up, let it air, and the infection begins to disperse. The apostles were really wise in bringing this problem to the front of the church and be able to deal with it head on. The apostles then make the clear distinction of their role in the church and begin to redefine the word ministry. They've had the, every now and again, churches have to go through a time of reinvention. They've got to come to a time where they go, wow, our model is not quite working. We have to shift a bit. You know, when our church gets to about 100 people, 
some of the way we do things will sort of shift in how we how we do ministry or how we do administration around that sort of thing you know when the church gets to 300 you know it, there's different things different phases different church growth things that occur and leadership has to change the church kind of adapts to all that and we've got to find ways to make sure that what we are as a small unit continues no matter how big we get it's a big challenge ahead these guys are in the place of redefining the area of ministry they knew at heart that they were apostles apostolos ones sent forth these were given the charge by christ himself to go and make disciples their area of expertise in the church was ministry or the greek word for ministry is diaconia and their job was ministry or diaconia of the word of god but they now acknowledge that as the church is growing there's a new ministry needed a new form of diaconia it was about the welfare and the administration of the church there was 25,000 people in this church by now the apostolics uh, apostles could not do both and they had no problem stating this fact before the church they knew their role as teachers and spiritual leaders would be compromised if they spread themselves too thin and these guys had the integrity to make this known instead of shouldering the extra responsibility the apostles began a healthy movement of delegated tasks and also delegated authority within the ranks of the church the issue that came up in the church although it might have gone sinister or it might have created some sour stuff actually gave the church the chance to grow up a little bit and see other people in their midst become empowered to lead as well the apostles take the solution to the people in Exodus 18, we read about Moses and his leadership. And his father-in-law comes and watches him do his day's work. He comes down and watches and goes, Wow, this is the day in the life of Moses? These people are swamping you with the littlest of details. And Moses goes, But this is what I feel I have to be doing. And he goes, No, 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 no. Find some people in your group, in your midst, who can come and help along. Get them to pick up the smaller tasks and then you focus on only the toughest ones. How about that? Moses takes that advice and he actually finds good responsible men and women perhaps to help out and the nation as a whole did well as a result of his actions there in Luke 9 we see Jesus teaching the crowd and the, advi- and the disciples are advising him you know move on let's get, let's get this crowd moving get them dispersing get them home before the fish and chip shop closes and Jesus shows his desire to empower others with one simple statement you find them something to eat it made them do a double take and they probably felt like complete idiots when they presented a few loaves and fish to Jesus but it was enough for Jesus to move and 5,000 people ate their fill Jesus always does the miraculous but he's also wanting his followers to get involved in the picture now we come to Acts and the apostles have their problem their answer is simple that could have been what it was like their problem is the answer is this it's you the people that have the power to fix this it's you the people who feel the strongest about this issue we as teachers have our hands full but there are 25,000 of you surely there are some people in your midst who are a solid character and spirit to take on this area of ministry and sure enough there was another life lesson to take with you here 
If there's an area of church life that annoys you so much that you're willing to demand healthy, progressive change, more often than not, you've been ushered into that place because Jesus is ordaining you to be the agent of change it needs. No one gets a task done better than people who are passionate for what, it, for what they do, who see it as a cause rather than a job or a chore. In the case of the mistreated Hellenistic Christians here, who had the, you know, with these mistreated widows, we read that the answer was actually in the midst of the Hellenistic, Hellenistic Jews that were in the church, the Hellenistic Christians who made the complaint. There are seven people listed in this chest, in this lit, in this our text, who had the goods to be the solution, and all seven of them had names which were distinctly Greek rather than Hebraic. As the problem was exposed. The Hebraics and the Hellenists alike made a unanimous decision to put seven people forward. The Hebraics relaxed their agenda and the Greeks, the Hellenists, were given a voice. Now this is seen by many scholars and church historians as the birth of a role that we call today deacons as because of the word diaconos or diaconia that comes out of this. In this text... Both the apostles and these new seven new deacons were appointed for the task of diaconia. But the method of delivery would be different. The apostles provided diaconia in the form of prayer and teaching, while the deacons provided diaconia in practical things. There was ministry of word and a ministry of tables established. Being a deacon in the church life both then and now makes you a fellow minister in the life of the church. The deacons' movement didn't form in order to keep the apostles honest, but instead sought to come alongside the apostles and be partners in service to the church. In Exodus 17, we read that Moses oversees a battle between his soldiers and the Amalekites. For the Israelite army to prevail, he has to hold his staff up, the staff of God. When he got tired, his fellow priests, Aaron and Hur, were able to get alongside him and help him with the task. They found a rock for him to sit on and they got under each arm and held it up. In the same way, the church was facing a new battle. And the deacons got involved as fellow ministers with the apostles to help fight it out. When the church was in need and people were grumbling, the deacons jumped in and met the need. And because the early deacons were seen as every bit the minister the apostles were, they were subject to the same spiritual and conductual responsibility. At the recommendation of the apostles, they were required to have character. That's a pretty good one for a deacon. To have wisdom. Yeah, that's a pretty good one too. And to demonstrate that they could be led by the Spirit. And the cool thing about it is when they all stopped arguing and allowed the conflict to be exposed, they were able to see that Jesus, in his graciousness and love for the church, had already provided the means to meet the needs that they had. It wasn't hiding in a Bible college classroom somewhere. It was sitting next to them in the temple prayer meeting. Now we read many times in Acts that after every challenge the church faced and every battle it faced, it grows forward. And this case was no different. It's okay to have challenges come our way in church life. More often than not, it is God allowing us to grow out of it. If conflict arises, it gives us a chance to grow our character in the area of reconciliation. If sin arises, it gives us a chance to grow, particularly to learn to forgive, but also in the area of grace, forgiveness, and restoration. 
If needs arise, it gives us a chance to release people into ministry to deal with those needs. After this, the third challenge to the Jerusalem church, we see it grows again. It says that the, the, the gospel spread and the number of people increased. The words spread and increase in the Greek are both imperfect terms, indicating a continuity in this process. The new believers just kept coming and coming. But this time, we also read that a significant number of the 8,000 priests of Jerusalem were also coming to faith as well. Through the church going through its toughest battle to date, it also won over members of their toughest demographic to reach. Imagine the joy of those priests as they operated in the temple as they were employed to do, seeing with full clarity the meaning of the rituals that they were practicing. Had the church ignored the problem and the apostles attempted to shoulder every responsibility, there's a really good chance we wouldn't have been able to read that last line today. This was a distinct attack of the enemy of the church doing all he can to halt the work of God. And when the people unified in seeking solutions, ending conflict and releasing more ministers, the collective character of the church got stronger and better prepared for more to join them. It's time to sort of wind up, I think. It's always the shortest passages in the Bible that seem to be the most loaded. I kind of think, oh, this is going to be an easy passage this week. Nah. There's a few things we can look at as we ponder these first verses in the morning. First up, in this passage, the source of the conflict that arose was an inability for cultures to fully cohabitate in church life. And every church from Jerusalem today has to fight the temptation to suppress outside cultures in favor of preserving their own. In Perth, I hope this moves you. In Perth, we had a, we had a great growing indigenous ministry. All these kids from indigenous backgrounds coming in. If you know anything about missionary work and know how hard it is to reach the Aboriginal culture with the gospel, particularly in the urban centers, with all their life problems and all those different things going on, to get a bunch of kids showing up is a massive feat. So we got the Sunday school on Sunday morning and got all these kids running around the playground. It's an awesome thing. But we had this Dutch family come and visit our church once. And in their Dutchness, and I'm Dutch so I can feel this pain, in their Dutchness, they saw the color of the skin of the kids, saw the pasty white of their own, and were conflicted by that. They commented on it, they couldn't get past on, past that, and we never saw them again. They wanted a place where their kids could fit in more. That broke my heart that day. The Hebraics were trying to suppress the Hellenists. But for the world to be reached, the Hellenists needed to be empowered because they knew Greek when the Hebraics didn't. In our church, our Hebraic attitude comes out when we negotiate forms and styles in worship. Let's just put it out there. It's an elephant in the room sometimes. While inside my Hebraic bubble, I appreciate our hymns. I appreciate our old things and our traditions of church. I do really do deeply appreciate those things. I, I, I've grown up hearing some of that stuff. I've had to relearn it. Every time I learn a new hymn to play, I kind of get captured in that and go, wow, that's an amazing thing. 
some of the words and some of the insight and, and I know where they came about and why they were written and things like that. Trouble is, musically and lyrically, it's akin to Hebrew in a Hellenistic world out there. It keeps us in touch with our faith heritage, but there's a risk it can render us out of touch with the outside world. Paul, the great Hebraic Jew, the Pharisee of all Pharisees, the one trained by Gamaliel, a Pharisee of all Pharisees, a Hebraic of all Hebraics, wrote this in 1 Corinthians. Though I am free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though, myself, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, although I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. And I do this for the sake of the gospel so that I may share in its blessings. If we want to continually reach people outside the walls of our church, then we need to speak the language and understand the culture of the outside world and bring Jesus into it. The onus is on us to relate to them in order to win them, not the other way around. I didn't want to go down this path today, but as I was studying, I kind of, it's like God just said, nah, here it is. I didn't want to touch this, I'm sorry. But I dare say this is something Jesus wanted to address in us in a profound and perhaps redefining way in our life. We are not, let me put this on record, we're not going to throw out our Hebraic ways, our, our heritage. The baby doesn't go out with the bathwater. But we need to pick up, you know what? Everybody outside of the walls of the church, anybody with no experience of church life, even no matter how old they are, essentially live a Hellenistic lifestyle out there in the world. So this is for all of us. If all we do is reach Hebraics, we're just going to have all we're going to bring all the transfer growth in and nothing else. Two, this passage shows us the depth of damage that comes about from unresolved conflict and backroom church politics. The grumbling and complaint described in this text is driven by a deliberate attempt to spiritually destabilize the church. God in history always comes front and center through the prophets to address wrongdoing in God's, in God's people. He didn't instigate behind-the-scenes conversations. Those come from elsewhere. All conflicts need to come front and center so that they can be addressed and healing can begin. And before we bring things to be dealt with, make sure our yes means yes, our no means no, and our everyone means everyone. If it's your issue and you found someone to agree with you, you know what? Mention it anyway. Bring it up to a deacon. Bring it up to a pastor. We're a full-on bunch of equals here. Don't let it become like a stone in your shoe. That's just going to irritate you and irritate you until you shake it out. Better out than in. Problems and conflicts spoken in the right environment, where it's open, it's honest, it's transparent, not hostile, but open to discussion, 
these things get dealt with health and harmony remains constant in the church and finally the passage highlights that church growth is stunted when ministers can't be found leaders in church life are more often than not high capacity people particularly church pastors they're all got this big thing big grand schemes grand plans and things and full of a holy spirit wanting to move and do things in their heart they can see great things and they carry big burdens they got vision they got passion and they carry they have a burden for the task that lays ahead and most of these sort of leaders can carry it for quite some distance they kind of look like superhuman up here but you know what (laughs) everyone has a breaking point the 12 apostles got to 25,000 people and as anointed as they were they were at breaking point they said no 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 we got to find some more people here if a leader doesn't share his burden no one around him will be trained enough to carry it after he's gone 2 Timothy 2.2 tells us to commit these things the truth of the gospel and sound doctrine and all that stuff to faithful men who can do the work also if I carry it all as a pastor and had nothing on, it becomes all about my empire and not about God's kingdom. If we ever get to a point where I'm holding all the reins for an extended period of time, whether it's by mine or your design, this will have disastrous consequences. Areas of ministry will suffer. I won't be preaching at the level you would expect. I, won't have not, I wouldn't have time to minister or mentor people effectively. And most importantly, my prayer life, both for you and for myself, would suffer greatly. All those things would play second fiddle. To protect me from that, I am instructed to raise up other people through the Scriptures. And the church as a whole is also instructed to empower people to minister alongside me. The key thing to note is that as the pastor of the church and as the one who is seeking God's vision and direction for local assembly... I need you to share the burden I am carrying before you consider carrying one of your own. Right now, I'm in a spot to train and hand over the reins of our online communications. If you've got a couple of hours to spend in a week and have a reliable computer and a bit of internet, I can easily show you how to do that stuff. It doesn't take long to learn and it'll be a blessing to the church if someone else picks up that that rein. In time, when we've worked ourselves out so that we're a healthy mix of Hebraic and Hellenist in our style, we will look for someone who can oversee my current burden of worship. I'm on the lookout for people who can help carry my burden of preaching on the Sunday morning services. You don't want to hear from me every single week, surely. If other people have the gift of the gab and have the character and the spiritual insight and want to be trained in this field, come and have a chat. Let's work this through. If you're ready-made, come and see me sooner. We've got the burden of youth ministry. We've got the burden of, 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 of home groups and study groups that we could be forming. All those things can be picked up within the ranks of the church. In more pressing news, we need to address the issue of our own church diaconate. If you're of the character and spirit described here and have a passion and drive to co-labor and co-minister with us, then have a chat with the current deacons about it. February is when things get changed over in the church. we're anticipating a bit more of a turnover than usual in our diaconate pray about it have a chat with someone who's already doing the role and find out what it's all about if God is prompting you don't dilly dally on this one please give it some prayer 
There's a great poem which I read 20 years ago on my old church notice board. Glasses out again. There was a most important job that needed to be done and no reason not to do it. There was absolutely none. But in vital matters, matters such as this, the thing you have to ask is who exactly will it be who carry out this task? Anybody could have told you that everybody knew that this was something somebody would surely have to do. Nobody was unwilling. Anybody had the ability, but nobody thought he was supposed to be the one. It seemed to be a job that anybody could have done if anybody thought he was supposed to be the one. But since everybody recognized that anybody could, everybody took for granted that somebody would. But nobody told anybody that we are aware of that he would be in charge of seeing it was taken care of. And nobody took it on himself to follow through and do what everybody thought that somebody would do. When that what everybody needs to do did not get done at all, everybody was complaining that somebody dropped the ball. Anybody then could see it was an awful crying shame and everybody looked around for somebody to blame. Somebody should have done the job, everybody would have, but in the end nobody did what anybody could have. As we leave here today, let's be mindful of our culture. If we are Hebraic, don't, don't suppress the Hellenists. Encourage them. Let them go because they're going to reach many people that some of us probably won't ever meet. If you lean towards the Hellenist side, which admittedly I probably do, <laughs> respect the beauty of the tradition and the language of the Hebraics. The Hebrew language is a beautiful thing when you look at it. The Hebrew tradition, the ancient Jewish way was an amazing thing. The, Jew, the Hellenistic Jews would have done a great disservice to lose track of those things. Same today. We've got an old way of doing things. Respect it. Respect the heritage we come from. But don't let it be the absolute cloud of everything when we need to reach a world out there. Together, let the cultures cohabitate in the church. Cultural difference is worldly, worldly thinking. In Christ, we're all one. Be mindful of our conversations and conflicts. If you're thinking something different to what I'm thinking or saying something different to what I'm saying, then that is the definition of conflict. And I'm not talking about leadership responsibilities here, but if, you two have, if two people have a conversation and they differ in opinion, that is conflict. That's the very def- that's a definition right there. Be mindful of the forums we use to bring our conflicts to light. And finally, let's be mindful of the need to share the burden. If you have a leadership gift or any ministry gift that's not being put to use right now, the short answer, the short question is this, why not? What's holding you back? Is it a time of rest? I understand that. Is it a time of, I just don't know if it's my time? Yes, it is. Or, I don't know if Jesus really wants me to do this. Did he empower you? Yes. Is there a need? Yes. Are you rested? Yes. Then maybe it's your time. If you feel that being a deacon is a possibility, then take the steps of talking with one to find out more. Share the burden of ministry in this growing church together. Let's pray.